0: All right, well good morning everybody. Um, welcome to uh, Redemption Church on this um, January day. I um, hope that you guys are doing well. I know that uh, Ben and Claire are home this morning with something that looks like the flu. So I hope you guys and your families and your household households have uh, avoided the bug that is going around. But um, thankful that we are able to be here this morning together to sort of uh, dive into God's Word for a little while and worship together. We are continuing in our series through the book of Acts. For the better part of 2018, we as a church will be looking at the book of Acts. Um, and specifically over the last couple of weeks and, and uh, next week as well, uh, we've been specifically looking at the first couple of chapters of Acts um, and calling this little mini-series within the book of Acts Pentecost. Uh, The book of Acts is all about the gospel going to the ends of the earth like Jesus said that it would, like Jesus promised his disciples and the people that were gathered uh, after his resurrection. And Luke in the book of Acts recalls Jesus' resurrection. He preaches what Jesus preached about the kingdom, what Jesus commanded, and what he promised, how it all connects together, and how all of this idea of the gospel going to the end of the earth comes to fruition. And uh, so Luke, I think, in the book of Acts, leads us to see um, sort of the way that the Holy Spirit leads the early church uh, to take the gospel to the end of the earth, inasmuch as the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. And that's exactly what we'll be talking about this morning, Acts chapter two, uh, the first part of Acts chapter two, and this event known as Pentecost. But before we dive into that, let's take a moment and, uh, and pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning, to gather around your word, to dive deeply into what you would have for us. Uh, God, we remember those who uh, can't be with us this morning because of sickness or, or whatever else might be going on. We pray for quick healing, uh, for strength. We pray for your mercy in those situations. But God, as we're gathered here Uh, To hear your word this morning, I pray that Jesus would be lifted high uh, and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and minds, that we would hear your words and not my words, that you would be honored and glorified and that we would be drawn to you. Um, God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, If you have your Bibles, uh, you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read right now the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. I think it will be up here on the screens as well. But Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. But others were mocking, and they said they are filled with new wine. If we look at the event of Pentecost, it is in some ways what I would call a holy interruption. It's God showing up suddenly, most likely in a pretty unexpected way, to bring about something positive in the advancement of the gospel. We don't usually interpret interruptions as a good thing. We don't usually like to be interrupted. How does it feel to be interrupted, right? We don't, we don't like that. Um, yesterday, uh, I uh, went to sit down at the computer at my house to begin uh, to, to just do some final uh, changes to the sermon and update some things online that we sort of all look at. A couple of different things, and, and my computer just stopped working. Um, it's still not working this morning. The internet went out at my house yesterday. I spent an hour on the phone with AT&T. Uh, that was an interruption I didn't expect, and it, wasn't, it was not pleasant. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that interruptions happen, and they just don't feel good, right? We, we get this. I have this person that I work with that has no concept of how annoying interruptions can be, and, and they just constantly interrupt the conversation that you're in, to, to, to get their questions answered or to get their needs met, not considering what's happening in that conversation, right? It, it becomes annoying when that happens. We don't typically interpret interruptions as a good thing. I remember when my daughter Natalie, um, Natalie's in the back over there, so I'm going to embarrass her. I remember when my daughter Natalie was three or four years old, um, all of a sudden, just out of the blue, she became scared to sleep in her room At night, and that was unusual because that had just never happened to her before. She had never had that experience. And uh, I remember being in bed, and uh, I didn't really wake up. I didn't hear Natalie come into the room, but I remember waking up, and Natalie's face was right in my face when I woke up. And I just, like, freaked out, like, ah! I can't deal with this being terrified in the middle of the night waking up like that. I'll never forget that. Completely terrified. It's creepy when you wake up and your kid's face is right in your face. I'm just telling you. Right? Completely terrified by that interruption. If we take a look back, if we take a step back and look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, what we see in the first four verses is a holy interruption of the early church gathered together after Jesus' resurrection. That's what the first four verses are about. The Holy Spirit showing up, interrupting what they're doing, And pushing them out to do something different. And then from verses 5 through 13, you sort of see the crowd's reaction to that interruption. You see the crowd's reaction to what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up and interrupts those early believers. And so what I want to do is look at this passage this morning and sort of uh, examine three things. First off, I just want to walk through the text for a minute and point out some things that we should see and that we should pick up. As we examine the text, they're important to understanding what's happening. The second thing I want to do is take a look at the context of where Luke places the story and how it actually compares to something else in Scripture. And then thirdly, I want to take a look at the implications of the Holy Spirit showing up and interrupting these early believers. But first off, let's look at some specifics in the text, right? In verse 1, we see that the events of Acts chapter 2, this first few verses, happen on the day of Pentecost. When we think of Pentecost, we think of this story, probably. But actually, the day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival that happened 50 days after the Passover. Uh, The Greek word Pentecost literally means 50th, uh, or something along those lines. And so we're about 50 days after the Passover, so we're about 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This festival was a festival that happened every year about 50 days after Passover, it was a time where all of Israel was intended to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to come to the temple to both remember God's deliverance from Egypt when God brought them out of Egypt and also to tithe on the first fruits of the wheat harvest. That's what Pentecost was about. Deuteronomy 16 specifically says that parents and children and male and female servants and sojourners and the fatherless and the widows were all to go to Jerusalem and feast in memory of God's deliverance of his people from the bondage of Egypt. And so that's what's happening in Jerusalem when the day of Pentecost, as we know it, takes place in Acts chapter 2. There would have been a tremendous amount of people in Jerusalem that day. Verse 5 or 6 talks about all the people dwelling there from different places, but in addition to that, there would have been a lot of pilgrims in Jerusalem that day. In verse 2, the passage says that a a mighty rushing wind fills the house, right? It's an external thing that comes in, fills the house with sound, and that sort of, uh, we should just see right off the bat that that sort of evokes some Old Testament imagery from Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, where God's life gives newness, where God's breath gives newness of life. In verse three, we see tongues of fire resting on everyone in the room. Not not just on the disciples, but on everyone, and that's important. Men, women, disciples, everybody in the room, tongues of fire resting on their head. That evokes some Old Testament imagery as well. If you think back through the Old Testament, when God shows up, there's often fire involved. When God is leading his people through the desert as they're leaving Egypt, he's leading them through a pillar of fire. When God shows up to Moses and says, go and deliver my people from Pharaoh, it's a burning bush. When God gives his covenant to his people on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, um, when Moses comes down to do that, it's... There's fire and smoke, and God shows up in that way. And, and just like the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism, the Holy Spirit sort of descends on the people in the room that day with fire. In verse 4, we're told that all of them in the room, men and women, disciples, non-disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in languages that they did not know. And the Old Testament, being filled with the Spirit generally meant being gifted with a certain set of skills for a certain purpose. You see that in Exodus chapter 31. You see it in Deuteronomy chapter 34. You see it in Micah chapter 3. And so here these men and women are uniquely gifted in this moment for cross-cultural and cross-linguistic ministry by the Holy Spirit as they begin to speak languages that they don't know, declaring the mighty works of, of God. And, and nothing symbolizes that cross-cultural empowerment for ministry better than being able to speak a language that you don't know. Verses five through eight tells us there's a lot of people in Jerusalem, and the people in Jerusalem are from all over the known world. That's what verses nine through eleven tell us. They're there from everywhere. And in verse 12, the crowd is asking what all this means and why this is happening. And in verse 13, the crowd answers the question and says, they're drunk. We we haven't read it yet. I'm going to read it just now. Uh, It's not really part of the text that we're examining this morning. But Peter goes on to explain in verses 17 through 21 of Acts what is actually happening. The crowd wants to know what is going on. And so Peter answers that question in verses 17 through 21 Let me um, read that real quick. And Peter quotes directly from the book of Joel, by the way, when he reads this. He actually modifies Joel just a little bit. um, But he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And Peter says, And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, And so Peter points everybody present back to the book of Joel and says what is happening is a fulfillment from the Old Testament that in the last days God's spirit will enable his people to proclaim God's word in such a way that people are going to hear and respond and become followers of Jesus Christ, become followers of the Lord. And so Peter says that's what's happening. What Joel said is going to happen, it's happening. That's what this event is. Is. This event is the fulfillment of a prophetic announcement that one day God's people will be empowered to proclaim God's word in a magnificent way accompanied by wonders and signs, speaking in tongues. This festival was a time for all of Israel to come and worship. Men, women, parents, children, male, female servants, sojourners, Widows, fatherless, they're all there in Jerusalem. And there's a representation of that group in the upper room, or in this room, this house, wherever they are. Uh, Earlier in Acts 1, they're in the upper room. We're assuming they might still be there. And Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 and says, Your sons and daughters, your old men and your young men, your male and your female servants, they're all empowered for ministry. And that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. God's people, present in Jerusalem, the early church, present in this house, are empowered for ministry, people hear the gospel proclaimed in their own languages, and later we see that there's a significant number of people who come to faith as a result of this event. Now, before we go any further, I want to just go sideways for a minute and sort of look at the context of this text to better understand exactly what this text means. Um, I shared with you a few moments ago about uh, Natalie when she uh, woke me up in the night, interrupted me when I was sleeping, and how it, how it terrified me, right? I didn't find that interruption to be pleasant. Uh, quite frankly, I was terrified in the moment, like I said, and, and, I, and what I really wanted was to just be left alone and go back to sleep, um, right? And what if the context for why she woke me up was different? What if she woke me up to say there's an emergency in the house? What if she woke me up to say um, there is an intruder in the house or something bad has happened? That interruption would have still been terrifying, but it wouldn't have been annoying. It would have been something else, right? There would have been A different context and a different reaction and a greater purpose for why uh, I was being awakened in the middle of the night. There would have been a greater purpose to that interruption. The event of being filled with the Holy Spirit that we see in Acts chapter 2 is what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, specifically verse 8. Jesus also promised it at the end of Luke, Um, but we see uh, that it's sort of uh, the fulfillment of that promise it's an empowerment for these believers to speak God's message just like Joel foretold right that's what we talked about a second ago but in this moment the early church God's people are empowered for cross-cultural ministry cross-linguistic ministry in a new and a different way in order to proclaim God's word and so the only way that I can understand this event according to what Joel said according to how Peter interprets this, is to view this event in light of the Old Testament Scriptures, in light of Jesus' promise that he was going to spend, send the Holy Spirit so that the disciples and those in the, um, gathered around the disciples would be his witnesses to the end of the earth. Jesus promised it. That's what's happening. Uh, ultimately, the disciples... And the men and women present with them in the upper room, or in the house that day. They were interrupted by the Holy Spirit in order to be God's witnesses, right? And, and, and here's what I want us to see, right? I, I don't want us to don't don't miss this, okay? Jesus, just at just as Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, after his baptism, he was uniquely, or at his baptism, he was uniquely identified by the Father. He was uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit. That happens at the beginning of Luke. At the beginning of Acts, the early church is empowered for their purposes of being witnesses to the end of the earth through this miraculous event of the Holy Spirit coming down and enabling them to speak languages they don't know. The pivotal place of the Pentecost event in the story of Acts, it's not difficult to discern when it's compared to the book of Luke. But I think it's often overlooked. Jesus is identified and anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. Jesus ministers. Now Jesus has ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come and the church is empowered for ministry just like Jesus was anointed for ministry in Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4, right? There's a direct correlation between Luke's gospel that Luke wrote and how Jesus is sent out on mission and how the early church is sent out on mission. That correlation goes even further, If you look at Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his public ministry, when he first starts talking in his public ministry, he takes a passage from the book of Isaiah and interprets it in light of himself. This is from Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's a direct quote from Isaiah. It also harkens back to Mary's prayer about Jesus. The church's public ministry opens with a text from Joel 2, where Peter speaks of the Holy Spirit empowering the church for ministry in a new way. He says, And in the last days that shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Right? I, I just want you to see that connection. Do you, I want you to grasp that connection because it's so important. Like Jesus, the early church is being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill its purpose and mission. That's why Pentecost happens. That's the meaning of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, fills, and empowers God's people to be prophetic witnesses to Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. That's what Acts chapter 2 is about. The Holy Spirit sending the church out on mission with a new empowerment that has not existed before. The early church is identified and empowered for ministry through this Pentecost event. If when Natalie awakened me from sleep, if she had told me that there was some Emergency in the house. There would have been immediate implications to what she was telling me. Based on what the emergency was, I might have had to call nine one one. I might have had to get up and and uh, take care of somebody who was sick. I might have had to confront an intruder. I might have had to get everybody out of the house immediately. Whatever the situation, the implications would have become immediately obvious. There are some immediate implications to Acts chapter 2. When we look at the book of Acts, I talked about this last week, Acts is a story. It's the story of um, God's Holy Spirit empowering the early church for mission. But it's more than that. It's an invitation to join in to what God is doing through the church to be empowered for ministry. And there are implications beyond that. That I think we need to see right away. And so I've got four implications that I want to just dive into for a minute. And then maybe some specifics for Redemption Church. But four implications to Pentecost. Number one, Pentecost begins a new age of gospel proclamation. In the midst of all this supernatural stuff that's going on in Acts chapter 2. What do the people hear That are gathered around the disciples. What do they hear? It says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They're hearing the mighty works of God. They're hearing the gospel. They're hearing what God has done for his people. They're hearing the gospel. And even in the midst of this incredible miracle, even in the midst of this incredible empowerment, the focus is still on what God has done for his people. The focus is on what Christ has done. The the early church doesn't stop and start talking about how amazing it is that they're speaking in tongues. They don't even question it. They just continue to proclaim the gospel. They continue to be so exuberant about God's mighty works, that they are accused of being drunk, right? Neither Luke, in his writing this story and recounting this story, nor Peter, and how he explains what's really going on, ever stops to focus on the miraculous thing of speaking in a language they don't know. The focus is on the mighty works of God being proclaimed so that people hear it in their own Language. Luke, in this, writing this story, even though it's a discussion to be had, and even though it's a conversation that can be had, Luke, in writing this story, nor Peter, in explaining these events, are concerned as to whether tongues is a normative practice or not. Peter is concerned to say, hey, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And Luke is concerned to tell us the story about how the gospel goes forth. But I think Luke does something else really interesting here um, that you sort of see when you begin to dive into the text a little bit more. Uh, But I think what Luke is actually doing in a certain way is connecting this story of Pentecost to the Tower of Babel. Do you know the story of the Tower of Babel? I think there's a connection here. Part of the way that Luke connects us to that story is in verses 9 through 11 verses 9 through 11, Luke recounts all the different nations that are present in Jerusalem to see the event that's going on. In Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 10 is a list of nations. And so Luke, in some indirect way, I think, ties the story of Pentecost to Genesis. It, it, it may not be direct, but I think there is an indirect correlation and I think there's a tie there that we've, we sort of need to see, right? At the Tower of Babel, humans are trying to make a name for themselves by raising themselves up to heaven. And God responds how? By confusing their language. And as a result, language becomes an obstacle that has to be overcome. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit in this unique empowerment for the church says language is not going to be an obstacle for God's word to be proclaimed and for you to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. In Genesis chapter 11, the people are confused by language. In Acts chapter 2, they are amazed and bewildered by how language is no longer an issue. And they're saying, how is it that we are hearing this in our own language. Aren't these people from Galilee? Aren't these some some rednecks from the woods? And each of them hears the praises of God in his or her own language, right? The implication of that is that Pentecost reveals the start of a new stage of history where God sends out the gospel into all of creation to create a people from every tribe and tongue and nation And language to be God's own. And language will not be a barrier to the proclamation of the gospel. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The whole point about Pentecost was that the disciples up till then hiding away in an upper room were blown out to the street by the rushing mighty wind to speak the truth of God in Christ in public and to do so boldly and unashamed. If Pentecost is simply all about us having new private religious experiences, however exciting and dramatic, we are turning Christianity into a private hobby. The gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing if it's not public truth issuing a costly and dangerous challenge to the world's conceptions of truth. And at Pentecost, language is not going to be a barrier to God's word being heard and proclaimed. I don't know if you've ever been in a cross-cultural ministry setting. I've had the opportunity to be um, in Romania and a few other places um, where a different language is spoken Then I don't know. But when the Holy Spirit shows up, it doesn't matter what the language is. The Holy Spirit shows up and you're aware that God is doing something. Number two, another implication for Pentecost. Pentecost breaks down barriers. And stay with me on this, because I think this might be uh, incredibly pressing for our current, um, the current state of our nation, the current state of the world, uh, even more so than we realize. When, when the church was initially empowered to proclaim God's word cross-culturally, the Holy Spirit supernaturally allowed the gospel to be proclaimed in the vernacular speech And in the dialects of all the cultures present in Jerusalem that day. That day, the gospel was proclaimed in the heart languages of the people that were present. They weren't expected to understand Greek or Aramaic or some other language that the disciples may have been speaking or that they may have known and the people with them. The gospel was proclaimed and heard not in a universal language but in their own speech and in their own dialects and in their own language, right? Language is incredibly important to culture. And in this event, we see that no single language or no no single culture gets to be dominant when the Holy Spirit first empowers the church to proclaim the gospel. There is not one language, there is not one culture that is dominant. The miracle of tongues at Pentecost shows us that no single culture, no single language gets to claim that it is central to Christianity. The miracle of Pentecost points us to the fact that gospel empowerment is not meant to homogenize the people and the tribes and the nations of the world, rather... Christianity spawns variety and diversity in each culture, in each culture present in our nation and in each culture present around the world. Gospel empowerment serves to create a new kind of Christian identity that looks forward to the day when Revelation 7 becomes reality where there's a great multitude from every tribe and ethnic group and tongue gathered around Christ, united by Christ, not united by language not united by culture, united by Christ. When the gospel goes into a culture, the gospel both affirms that a culture as it can, and it convicts that culture where it needs to. We just finished 1 Peter not long ago. 1 Peter reminded us that we are sojourners wherever it is that we live. And so the gospel may serve to lift us from our culture a little bit, make us completely... um, Renewed by Christ. But the gospel never calls us to necessarily depart from our culture. As the gospel moves outward, we should not expect someone from another culture to become like us in our culture. We should expect them to become more fully Christian in their own context. According to how the gospel should be impacting and forming every area of their life. The gospel isn't meant to homogenize people. The gospel is meant to call people to be united by Christ. And so we should not expect a new believer in Africa to become European. We should expect them to become more fully African in the gospel. We should not expect a new believer in Augusta, Georgia to become anything other Than more fully Christian as the gospel impacts every area of their life. Western civilization, let me just say this, no matter how great some consider it to be, is incredibly arrogant in our appropriation of Christianity. Christianity doesn't belong to the West. I think right now Christianity, more so than ever, belongs to the world. To Africa and to Haiti and to China and to Nicaragua and to Egypt. And Pentecost breaks down barriers to the gospel while at the same time affirming the heart language and the heart culture of wherever the gospel needs to be proclaimed, there is no culture that gets to claim that it is central to Christianity. There is no language that gets to claim that. Rather, the gospel, as it's proclaimed to the nations, creates very beautiful and very unique expressions of Christianity exactly where God would have those. B Number three, Pentecost means that every believer is now empowered for mission. Let me suggest something to you. In that upper room or in that house that day, there were basically two kinds of people. There were the people that had been with Jesus all along through his ministry, and then there was everybody else. There were the disciples and everybody else that was around Jesus at the time. And and would you say that the disciples were better trained or more fully prepared for ministry at this point in time than anybody else? And I would have to say on some sense, probably, because they got to spend three years with Jesus, right? Everywhere Jesus went, they were with Jesus. Jesus comes back from the dead and spends 40 more days with them. And so these disciples that had been with Jesus from the very beginning, the people that had been with Jesus from the very beginning are probably more prepared for ministry than anybody ever has been Because Jesus trained them directly. But on that day, at Pentecost, the tongues of fire came down into that house, and they didn't just come down on every disciple, they came down on every person in the house. The men present, the women present, the disciples present, the non-disciples present. The tongues of fire comes down, and all of them, every single one, According to the story, if we take it at its face value, even the humblest, most illiterate, most untrained believer in that room became a fiery tongue for the gospel. As they all began to speak languages they did not know, so that those in Jerusalem would hear the mighty works of God. Every single believer in that room became a fiery tongue. Every single believer in that room, put another way, became a burning tongue. Bush, when Tim Keller talks about this passage, that's the terminology he uses, that power came into every single person in that house that day and empowered every single person for ministry. And I think part of the expectation from Luke as he's recounting this story is for us to understand that every believer is now empowered for gospel witness as we're a part of God's church that has been uniquely empowered to proclaim the word of God to the nations. Point number four, Pentecost signals the coming of a fuller restoration and a greater celebration. The Spirit's arrival in Acts chapter 2 signals a change. Jesus has ascended to heaven, and so what we have here is the transition from Christ's work on earth to the work of the Holy Spirit on earth through the local church. Jesus has ascended to heaven and is exalted right beside God the Father. Philippians 2 talks about that. And we've already seen how in this passage, uh, Peter refers back to Joel to say that that this is um, an end time fulfillment of God's word, that the Holy Spirit will empower his people for ministry. But interestingly enough, the prophecy that Peter talks about comes immediately after another striking promise from God in Joel chapter 2. Let me read that, other promise. shall never again be put to shame. The prophecy that Peter references in Acts chapter 2 comes immediately after this promise from God that one day a full restoration will take place, that one day God will redeem all of creation to himself and that God will redeem his people to himself. And that restoration is tied to this end times pouring out of God's spirit for prophetic witness that we see happening at Pentecost. While Jesus's reign is secure and eternal, we uh, we know that it hasn't come to its fullest expression just yet. While death has been defeated and we know that it has yet to come to a final end, and Pentecost is a pointer that history is moving toward God redeeming all of creation toward God calling people to be his own as we look forward to a great celebration where people from every tribe and tongue and nation are together with Christ. Just a couple of closing thoughts for us at Redemption Church. Number one, as a people, we should still be increasingly submitting all of our life To the empowering presence of Christ. He is at work, and we see this in Pentecost, to one day restore all of creation to himself. He is at work to call people to be his own people. And for now, the question is not, and for now, the question is whether or not there are any parts of us that need to be fully restored to Christ. Are we God's own people? Is the call for us this morning to come to Christ for the first time, or is the call for us to submit some area of our life to the empowering lordship of Christ that we're unwilling to let go of? Is there some part of our life that needs restoration? And that's a question we must ask ourselves this morning. Number two, every believer in this room, every church member in this room is empowered for the advance of the kingdom. All of us are called and empowered through word and in deed to advance the kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, there's a unique empowerment of the early church to proclaim God's word. That unique empowerment, as I said, was a, a transition from Christ being at work on earth to the Holy Spirit being at work on earth through His church. Every believer, every man and woman every believer is empowered for ministry and i think that's part of why luke wrote this book i think that's part of what the holy spirit is speaking to us is that god empowers his people for ministry and there's an expectation that believers will be about what god has empowered us to do we're going to enter into a time of response And I would encourage you to sort of reflect on that for a moment as we enter that time of response. Is there some area of life that needs to be restored to Christ? Does our life belong to Christ? Does it need to belong to Christ? And secondly, if we do belong to Christ, how are we stewarding this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers His people for ministry. During our time of response, the band will come back up here in just a second and um, continue to give us the opportunity to worship through singing. Uh, during the time of response, you have an opportunity to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can do that. Um, during this time of response, you have an opportunity to sit where you are, to stand where you are, to reflect on what we've Talked about in what we've heard from God's word this morning. How the spirit is at work in you. We have an opportunity to take communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption. It's a way for us to do what scripture says. To remember what Christ has done for us. And to proclaim to one another that we believe it. That's what the act of communion is. When you come down the middle aisle and you tear off the bread and dip it in the wine or juice. You are remembering what Christ has done for you. And you are proclaiming that you believe it. So if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, and you feel the freedom to take communion, I would invite you to come and do so. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you can't really remember and you can't really proclaim that. So let me encourage you to stay where you are, not to call you out or signal you out or embarrass you, but just simply to say, we don't want you to come and to say something that is not true. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we'll transition into this time of response. Holy Father thank you for this reminder from your word of how Jesus was at work to call the people to himself and to send those people out for your purposes. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that Jesus is still at work through the power of the Holy Spirit to empower his people for ministry. God, even now as we Um, take some time to respond, to remember, to reflect, to pray, to take communion, to sing. God, I pray that you would still be at work in our hearts and minds for Christ to be lifted high, for, for Christ to be glorified in this place, that we might be drawn to you. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.